and welcome to today's edition of Tabernacle Today, a podcast maintained by The Tabernacle located in Danville, Virginia. The following lesson is by Dr. Danny Campbell, senior pastor at The Tabernacle, and was recorded during our Wednesday evening Bible study. Additional information about The Tabernacle can be found at our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. Our prayer is that you will be blessed by the Word of God today. Turn in your Bibles as we join Dr. Danny for another edition of Tabernacle Today. Well, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. We continue on in 1 Peter. And uh, perhaps like me, at some point you have uh, looked at some of the Chronicles of Narnia that C.S. Lewis wrote. And in those Chronicles of Narnia, uh, Aslan represents God in that and uh, is so such a compelling figure. And so on your notes there, I wrote what C.S. Lewis wrote in one of those Narnia books. Wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. And that's eternal spring as it relates to the Lord. And so even though we experience momentary afflictions, uh, God has a purpose and plan. And when you look at 1 Peter, you're looking at uh, the work of a pastor, a fellow elder with other pastor elders who was very concerned that as the people were scattered, they would still serve God and make the most of every opportunity. And that was the theme also of the uh, little book of James, these pastors having a similar concern. So it was good to follow James with going into uh, Peter, the great friend of the Lord and uh, faithful disciple. And you'll see in verse 13, before we actually read through verses 17, you see the word therefore. And whenever there's a therefore in a part of Scripture, you want to ask the question, what's the therefore, therefore? And in this case, it's the glorious things that have gone before. Peter's talked about the new birth that believers have experienced. They've been born again to a living hope, a secure inheritance, a divine protection. They have a testable faith, an unseen love, an inexpressible joy. And so in those first 12 verses of chapter 1, uh, we saw that Christ is for the believer. Uh, Joey read us a verse, Psalm 68, 19, talks about the benefits that the Lord has for those that are His, and Peter has started with those things. In verses 13 to 17, we see that because Christ is for us, the believer is to be for Christ in all things. So chapter 1, verses 13 through 17, Peter writes, "...therefore gird up the loins of your mind." <laughs> Be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation, the unveiling of Jesus Christ. The same word from Revelation chapter 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, the grace that's to be brought to you. As obedient children, do not conform yourselves to the former lusts, as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it's written, Be holy, for I am holy." And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. And it goes on to things that relate, but uh, those are plenty for our study tonight through verse 17. I want to talk to you about hope and holiness. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the experience of the believer 
that uh, because you are in us, we know that not only do we have your love and joy inside of us, but you have a purpose on our life, a calling for our life, Lord. And I thank you that uh, the first call is to simply be like you. Uh, the famous question asks, what would Jesus do? And we look so wonderfully into the Gospels and see that you loved your Father, your Heavenly Father. You loved people. And God, you loved everyone you came into contact with, with a holy love, God. And you call us to love others with a holy love too, God, the love of Christ for this world. And so thank you that you've got a call that uh, even as we think about our own journey toward heaven, we can invite others onto this journey toward heaven with us, God. We pray that you'd look at, uh, be with us as we look at this wonderful little passage. In Christ's name I pray, amen. All right, so because of what Christ has done for me, for us, in verse 13 we see, I want to be with Christ. He says, get your minds ready for action, being self-disciplined, set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now this is the first command in the book of 1 Peter. So he's taken all this time to say, this is what you've got if you're mine, and here's the first command. If you belong to the Lord, your first command is to set your hope on Christ who is going to return, the revelation of Jesus Christ. His unveiling is sure to come. That phrase, gird up the loins of your mind, was used of a man pulling up his robe so he could run, right? Now, when you know where you're going to run, you pull up the robe and you're focused in as you run, right? And that's what he's saying. Do that to your mind. Get a hold of your mind. And whatever your mind is thinking of, just kind of wrench it and get it ready to run toward Jesus, to run toward all that God's got for you. Urgently line up your thinking with your faith beliefs. Don't let any area drag behind. In those days, you didn't lift up the robe. You might trip over it, right? So there's a, there's a focus there. There's an urgency there, a complete focus. And what we want is for our present decisions and actions uh, to be governed by that future hope that we have. Uh, Stephen Covey wrote the book, The Seven Highly, Habits of Highly Effective People. And the very first one was begin with the end in mind. And what he was encouraging people to do was think about the end of their life, maybe the funeral scene, right, of your life, where people are gathered around, and what would they say about your life? And what are the things you'd want to be true during that time? What will you have hoped to have accomplished in uh, loving your family and loving, uh, you know, this world and the work that you accomplished and things? And then, you know, uh, whatever age you are, you say, okay, if that's going to be then and this is now, I want to make sure I'm lining up my actions that those things will be true on that day, right? Uh, it's a little less morbid to think about being on the rocking chair, enjoying retirement and what you want to be true. But for the believer, we've got one on the other side of death, don't we? The time when we'll appear before the Lord and have the ultimate job uh, you know, evaluation time. Some of you with your bosses or you were the boss, you gave job evaluations or you've had job evaluations. And that ultimate time is coming where the Lord will be able to reward what was done for him and uh, we'll also understand, my goodness, you know, I could have done so much more for the Lord. And so I think that there will be joy in that moment, but also a little sadness that we weren't a little bit more girded up in our minds and our actions. But begin with the end in mind. Uh, I love how he, how he points people to the revelation of Jesus Christ, the day coming, and how uh, that day is going to bring the grace. Because, you know, when you think about um, how we all fall short of the glory of God, how the goal is to glorify God, but we fall short of that. 
Um, you know, we're so thankful for grace, aren't we? God's riches at Christ's expense. So that day is something to make us think, but it will be a day of joy because we'll finally be with Jesus. We'll see him face to face. And he says, think about that day as a day of grace. In fact, turn to Titus. Um, so turn left a little bit till you get to Paul's little letter to Titus. First Timothy, second Timothy, then Titus, because Titus says something similar uh, and all of them kind of line up. All the apostles were lining up thinking about as you live in the present, look forward to that day when you'll cross that finish line. And he says in Titus chapter 2, verse 10, uh, verse 11, it says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for or looking forward for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So the revelation is coming. The glorious appearing is coming. Now turn to 1 John. So from Peter, you have to go to the right this time. So we've seen Paul talks about it to Titus. Peter's talking about it to us. And um, 1 John talks about it to us as well. So 1 John chapter 3 and if you haven't ever seen these two verses, I know you'll want to just uh, keep on, you'll keep on thinking about this verse after you see it. But 1 John chapter 3, verse 2 says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when He is revealed, we will be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. And then verse 3 says, And everyone who has this hope in Him purifies himself just as He is pure. Uh, if you're going to run a marathon, not that I have, I've run a 10K, but nothing longer and don't ever plan to run anything longer. But if you're running a marathon, then you're making decisions in accordance to what it's going to feel like to cross that finish line. And we see Paul seeing, saying it, we see Peter saying it, we see John saying it. They're saying, as you run in this Christian race, imagine that day when you cross that line and you'll get to see Jesus, right? And Hebrews pictures that really well too, you know, the author and perfecter of our faith and who for the joy set before him endured his race, he finished. And Hebrews 12 pictures the saints of heaven cheering us on. Uh, Hebrews 11, the hall of faith, the saints cheering us on as we, uh, that great cloud of witnesses as we finish our race. And so Peter at the beginning says, listen, uh, because of what Christ has done for us, we want to be with Christ. Our outlook's going to determine our outcome in many cases, and our attitude's going to determine our action. Uh, many times as a soccer player and as a soccer coach, uh, I knew who was going to win the game before the, um, before the kickoff. <laughs> Just in how serious the teams were as they were warming up. You know, one team be joking around and not taking it too seriously. Uh, one game as a coach, uh, it was a cold morning. Uh, it was a tournament weekend and it was a cold morning. And the other team, uh, they, they were the favorite. My team was the underdog, but my team was out there running, getting ready, excited, hoping to win this thing, you know, and the other team was on the bus, staying warm. They came out at the, onto the field at the last, very last possible moment and they didn't know that we were gonna be on top of them like, uh, you know, just like a tiger. And we were, and we beat them. Um, and that game was already settled before the kickoff based on the focus and outlook and determination that was there. We want to be with Christ. Well, in verses 14 through 16, we also see not only do we want to be with Christ, we want to be like Christ. So there's your next fill in the blank. It says, as obedient children, in verse 14, do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance. 
So we're to be the obedient children that we now are through the new birth. Ignorance leads to indulgence in sin. Becoming God's child means wanting to be like our daddy. I think about what would happen if a uh, homeless child from Rio de Janeiro that lived in the slums, one of the slums, and used to have to, with other children, go into garbage uh, cans and get a little food out or something to get food. What if Bill Gates adopted one of those children, a homeless child from Rio de Janeiro? And uh, dinner time came at the Gates Mansion, you know, and I might, God, you can just imagine what's on that table, you know, all the different things. Well, actually, might not be a lot of fun things on that table, but anyway, uh, might be a lot of uh, celery and stuff. But anyway, um, so imagine dinner time comes and there's all these different wonderful foods to choose from there. And they wonder where the child is. Where's the child we adopted from Rio de Janeiro? And they realize the child is back around where the garbage can is because that's what he associated with dinner in the past. Well, he doesn't have to live like that anymore, right? He's a child of Bill Gates now. He's got all these resources at his disposal. He's a legal heir, right? He's got a, a, a daddy that can provide for him innumerable ways. And yet we do the same thing with our Heavenly Father, right? Here we have all these wonderful things, benefits at our disposal, our resources, all these tools, and oftentimes we wind up slumming instead with the old ways. It says in verse 15, As the one who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, for it's written, Be holy because I am holy. Now, this is one of those game changers in the Christian life. If you understand what it means to be holy and it turns into something you're thinking about in a positive way rather than in a negative way, then this is one of those game changers in your obedience to the Lord and your following the Lord. So here's some perspectives on holiness. The root meaning of the word translated as holy is just the word different. To be holy is to be set apart. We've heard that. But God is different. He's other. To be holy is to be set apart, devoted to God's purposes for our lives. Whereas the world around us is not for Christ, we are for Christ. That makes us different than the world. The Bible in several places talks about the sway that the evil one and his evil world system has on people, making them think that God's out to get them, that serving God would be in their worst interest, and that it would mean uh, not experiencing best in their life. But that's the mind thing we want to play is that if we're holy as He is holy, it's going to be in our best interest. It's going to make us turn into the best us we can become. And that's where the battle is. It's a mind battle, isn't it? God wants what's best for me even more than I do. Now, have you ever just stopped and thought about that? Because humans are committed to what's best for themselves. <laughs> you see it in a thousand ways during a lifetime, don't you? And yet, God is more committed to what's best for me than I am. And so every time there's a conflict between what I want and what a holy path for God, a different path for God would take, I'll always be the winner. It'll be in my best interest if I do what God says rather than what I do, do, want to do, even if I can't see it. It sure would have been better for Adam and Eve, right? Satan played a con game on them, right? He said, God's holding out on you. God doesn't want what's best for you. In fact, what God's doing is He knows if you partake of that sin and eat that apple, then uh, you will actually uh, be like God and you'll know what He's been holding out on you for. And of course, the exact opposite was true. God was protecting him. And so if we can learn to look at God's positive and negative commands as that which will help us live that different life, that holy life, then that will be 
uh, you'll be acting in your best interest. Perhaps you've heard me say it, but it reminds me of the time that I was at the eye doctor and I've got two kinds of uh, blindness that run in my family. I've got the glaucoma, I've got the macular degeneration on both sides of my family. And my grandma spent the last 20 years of her life not being able to see. And so uh, my eye doctor at the time, he, he changed the treatment later on, but at the time he thought I needed drops every night. And um, it's a little bit like flossing in the dentist, right? You know, I mean, they tell you to do it and you either do or you don't, you know, and that sort of thing. But I, I hadn't been taking the eye drops like I should. And so I went into the doctor there in Waynesburg and I thought, man, uh, you know, here it is. He's going to ask if I've been taking those drops and I'm going to, you know, uh, do the thing you do with a doctor and stuff. And uh, so he came to that time and he asked, have you been taking the drops? And I said, oh, no, here he's going to really let me have it. And I said, no, no, doc, I really haven't. And instead of him getting on me, he just shrugged and he said, huh, you're the winner in that deal or the loser, you know. <laughs> and, and it just changed that, that way he treated me like that just changed everything. I'm like, wait a second. I get what he's saying. He doesn't give a rip. He gets paid either way. <laughs> right. He's given me the he's give, he told me what to do for my eyes. They're not his eyes. And I think I'm the one winning if I get away with something there. But I'm not getting away with nothing if I don't do what he said. I'm the winner if I took the drops because I'd be able to see for the last years of my life. And I might not otherwise. Right. And so Je Dr. Jesus, when he calls us to be holy, he's saying, look, I'm going to tell you how to have the best life, not only that you'll be rewarding when you're in heaven one day, but also the most rewarding now. Even if you can't make sense of what I'm doing, you know, uh, uh, you know, by uh, following me on a lonely Friday night or whatever it is. Do you want what God's best for your life? Then holiness will matter to you. Now, again, I want to approach this a different way, another perspective, because Satan is a subtle and crafty enemy. And he's made the word holiness a source of discouragement for believers. Holiness is a reminder of how far we fall short. So let me again uh, talk about how the New Testament writers make it very simple for us. And this really resonates with me. The New Testament writers make it simple for us. Do you want to be like Jesus? If you love Jesus and look forward to being with Him one day, do you want to be like Jesus? That's what it means to be holy. To be holy is to not only love Jesus and want to be with Him one day, but also want to be like Him, uh, to want to be like Jesus and to act on His truth. And when I boil holiness down to that, it really becomes all the more appealing to me because it's not just a matter of the thou shalt nots of the Bible, but the thou shalt's, right? I get to be like Jesus and He's resourced me. So I've got the Holy Spirit inside, the Word of God, the promises. And as I live those, I'll increasingly live a holy life for Him. Well, I want to be with Jesus and I want to be like Jesus. But verse 17, we see we want to also want to please Christ. He says in verse 17, And as you, if you address His Father, the one who judges impartially based on each one's work, you are to conduct yourselves in reverence, or fear during this time of temporary residence. So, clearing up confusion about the two coming judgments. Uh, the great white throne judgment that we read about in Revelation 20 is for unbelievers, is for unbelievers. Revelation 20:15 says, And anyone not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. We know John 3.16, John 3.36 says, The one who believes has life, comma, 
But the one who does not believe will not experience life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on them. And so when a believer turns to Christ and is born again, they not only get their reserved place in heaven, they guarantee that they will not face a judgment that is punitive, that will have the penalty of the wrath of God uh, in hell. Jesus has borne the wrath of God for them on the cross. For the unbeliever, that's not happened, and that's why John 3.36 says the wrath of God remains on them. The, the, the transfer was not made to Christ at the cross because they were unbelievers. And even when Jesus was on the cross, because God is omniscient and knows all, He knew the ones in all of history, even after the time of cross, who would take Him up on the offer of salvation. And so he literally, as he hung there, knew the day would come in the future when Danny Campbell would receive that offering made for himself, and he bore that wrath. So in, in a re very real sense, that never happened for the person that never turns to Christ. Although if they would turn to Christ, then it did happen for them. That's the mind-blowing omniscience of God, right? Uh, the cross is sufficient to save everyone, who has ever lived, but it's efficient only for those who do at a point in time turn to Christ for salvation and experience that new birth. Um, so the great white throne judgment, believers are spared that judgment based on what Jesus has done for them. Having rejected Christ, unbelievers are evaluated and given degrees of punishment based on their deeds. You might remember as you've read through the gospel sometimes, Jesus says it's going to be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment for Capernaum. And the reason is, is because Capernaum had even more revelation than Sodom and Gomorrah had, but didn't turn to Christ for salvation, even though God was on earth right before them. So uh, Revelation 20, the great white throne judgment, says people, books are going to be opened. And if your name's not written in the Lamb's Book of Life through faith in Christ, then you're going to be judged based on what those books, the books of deeds, and hell will be as bad for unbelievers as they've made it. So every deed in a very real sense matter, matters for unbelievers. How bad hell will be forever is based on how much they've shaken their fist in the hand of God and acted against God during their lifetime. So yes, Adolf Hitler will have one of the worst hell experiences, but anybody who's denied Christ will have a bad, awful hell experience. It is torment forever and ever. But Jesus himself talked about it being more tolerable, and it's especially bad if you had revelation and didn't ever turn to Christ. You know, so that's why sometimes I say that uh, if you don't turn to Christ, and you've heard me preach another message today about how salvation is available and you're not receiving Christ, uh, it's one more witness against you on that day. You know, um, so. But for believers, the other judgment is the judgment seat of Christ is for believers. And 2 Corinthians 5 says, We make it our aim to be pleasing to Him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each may be repaid for what he has done in the body, whether good or bad. Knowing then the fear of the Lord, we persuade people we are completely open before God. That's 2 Corinthians 5, 9-11. So for believers, one day Christ will have an evaluation for us, and there won't be any penalty aspect of it, because all penalty is dealt with on the cross of Christ. But the way the scripture lays it out, he'll still be judging us and it'll be more of a job evaluation for rewards, you know. 
And so the world trips over itself to give awards out in music and in acting and sports and different things like that. But for the believer, even if we're good at one of those other things and get some human awards, the big reward ceremony we're looking forward to is the Bema Seat of Christ because that's where the ribbons were given out after contests in the days, you know, that's what that's referring to. And so we want to be rewarded for what we've done for Christ and uh, it'll be very powerful. And you say, well, Danny isn't being in heaven enough. Being in heaven is great, but it's Jesus himself who says some of the most profound things about living a life that God can reward. And then Paul says things and John says things and Peter says things. And so they didn't view this as one of the lower motivations to serve God. They viewed it as one of the higher motivations to serve God. And frankly, you know, as a pastor, I've dealt with a lot of different kind of people in my life. The kind of person that's expectantly looking forward because they love Christ to having him say, well done, thou good and faithful servant, and who says, man, that's a motivation for me, loves the highest motivation, but hope of reward is a big motivation. And so knowing Christ will reward things, that's a great motivation to uh, line up my giving with that and line up the, my time with that and acts of service with that and those different things. Uh, and so certainly it can be something that sidetracks us, but in the right motivation, can be a great sense of spurring us on. Um, now, George Whitfield had on his tombstone, it said this, Here lies George Whitfield. He was the great evangelist, of course. His tombstone said, What sort of man he was, the great day will discover. There's a verse where Paul says, I don't even judge myself. You know, there's people judging me. I don't even judge myself because God's going to take care of all that one day when he has that time of valuation. So we're evaluated and rewarded at this judgment based on what we've done for Christ. Some will receive greater rewards and responsibilities in the future kingdom than others. Turn to James chapter 3, right before 1 Peter there, James chapter 3. James says, My brothers, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, also able to bride the, bridle the whole body. So that's a place where James says, Okay, when we're talking about, you know, taking this time seriously of evaluation before the Lord, one of the things you ought to think about before you become a leader of others is how this will be an intense time of uh, scrutiny for you too as a teacher, a preacher, etc. So I think I wrote for you there evaluation of. So let's look at the different things that it says will be evaluated. First of all, thoughts and intents. Hebrews 4. So turn to Hebrews 4. Thoughts and intents. Hebrews 4. It says, for the word of God, verse 12, is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open, naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So this time of account will include our thoughts and intents. Um, let's... Uh, Words and relationships is the next one. I've given you several verses. Let's look at Romans 14. Romans 14. All right. Romans 14, verses 10 through 12. It says, Why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. These are words to Christians about a time of evaluation before Him. For it's written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us shall give an account of himself to God. 
Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. So the evaluation will be of thoughts and intents. It'll be of words and relationships. And then even motives. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Verses 3 through 5. He says, but with me... It's a, uh, well, let's just read, uh, starting in verse 1, that's such a good passage there. Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it's required in stewards that one be found faithful. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. In fact, here's what I was referring to a minute ago. Paul says, I do not even judge myself, for I know of nothing against myself, yet I am not justified by this, but he who judges me is the Lord." Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. Then each one's praise will come from God. So I can't judge your motives and you can't judge mine, but the Lord can. In fact, even in Israel, the Ten Commandments includes the Tenth Commandment, thou shalt not covet. And there's nothing like that in any of the nations around Israel when they had law codes, because how do you know that somebody's coveting what's their neighbors, right? Unless they explicitly tell you. There's motives, there's insides of us that no earthly being knows, sometimes not even our spouse, but God knows, right? And part of that evaluation is going to be even the very motives of our hearts, whether it was truly to have the praise of God or if we were doing it for the applause of men. Uh, 2 John 8 says, don't lose your reward. And then let's look at the great passage, 1 Corinthians 3, that is one of these main passages that uh, brings alive the idea of this sense of reward. 1 Corinthians 3. And again, we're not talking about anything related to salvation here because salvation comes through faith in Christ. But every deed ever done matters. If you're an unbeliever, it'll contribute to how bad judgment is for you. If you're a believer, it'll be how much God can reward you, right? So there's never anything that's ever been thought, said, or done that doesn't matter in God's scales. He is perfectly just. And anything that would have deserved wrath for us fortunately for us, has been dealt with at the cross of Christ, contributing to our appreciation for God's grace, right? That He bore the penalty so that He would only then reward me for what's done for Him. But verse 10 of 1 Corinthians 3, Paul says, "...according to the grace of God which was given to me, as a wise master builder I've laid the foundation, and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ." Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. He's not talking about hellfire here. He's talking about the same kind of fire that you put gold in and the dross is consumed and the gold is refined. How does a person working with gold know that the gold has the dross consumed and is coming into a purer product? Do you know how someone... He can see his reflection in it. It becomes like so beautiful, you know, so he sees himself. And what we want is for God to see himself in us because that dross is consumed. But when we think about that fire, 
a great way to think about it, and I wish I could give credit to where I first heard it because it's not from me, but a great way to think about it is every thought we think, every word we speak, every deed we've done, it's as if the immediate, immediately upon having that thought, word, or deed, it went right next to us in a pile that's building up as we live life. Some of those are uh, things that were sins, and it's like wood, hay, stubble of no profit, right, to us in the long run. Others is like diamond and gold or whatever, and it's there. Things that can survive a fire, uh, not of judgment, but a fire of evaluation. And when we stand before the Lord, He will take the fire and put it to that pile next to us. And all the things that aren't profitable for reward will just be burned away in that moment. How big will the pile left be for you and I? And that's what we want. Paul, Peter's using this as a motivation because we love Christ. We're going to be with Him one day. We want to please Him. Because of that, he's saying, think about that time and what you will have then that the Lord can reward. It is one of the higher motivations. And you guys have heard me, I think, maybe teach about the lower and higher motivations, but it's good to go over again. There are at least seven different motivations to serve God in the Bible. There are lower ones first. Let's go over those. The fear of God, right? Knowing He's God and we're not. The fear of God is a motivation that can keep us from doing dumb stuff. So can a sense of obligation to Him based on what He's commanded. So can, when we've blown it, a sense of guilt that we blew it, right? Um, all of those are motivations in all parts of the Scripture, but they're presented to us kind of as lower motivations, baseline motivations. And I gave them in that order specifically because FOG, fear, obligation, guilt, you'll, you see a lot of believers that walk around in a fog. There's not a lot of joy in their life. There's not a lot of joy in their walk with God, right? Uh, they are afraid of that day, so they, there's a fear for God there, so there's things they don't do as they walk the straight and narrow. There's a sense of obligation, so they never uh, miss a church or this, that, or the other. There's a sense of guilt, you know, if they, if they blow it. So they walk around in a fog. But those are the lower motivations. The hinge one, the one right in the middle, actually for some is what they put at the top, and it's the word gratitude, right? The word gratitude. And we ought to be grateful people. Thanksgiving is coming up. We should be people of gratitude. We're so grateful for what Christ did for us back there. But the reason it's the hinge and not quite the higher motivations yet, and it's very interesting, you're going to see this as you read through the Scriptures, uh, especially the New Testament, how when we get to the higher ones, how clearly they're presented as the higher motivations. A baseline in the middle is gratitude. But if we're not careful, gratitude can turn into a debtor's ethic over time. Okay, we're coming up on Christmas. Anybody see the movie uh, White Christmas? Okay, yeah. Love, it's always a staple for us watching White Christmas there. Bing Crosby, Danny Kaye, you know, Danny, what did Danny do for Bing Crosby back in the Army? Saved his life, right? Saved his life. And Bing Crosby was grateful, so much so that he puts Danny Kaye in the act. They come back to America, they're in the act, you know, it's going really well. Every once in a while, Danny Kay needs Bing Crosby to do something and refer back to that old war injury from pushing him away and saving his life, right? Remember that? And uh, now, Bing Crosby really is grateful that Danny Kay saved him, but it, it, it's, you know, it, it's a little hard 20 years later to have that be his main motivation, right? And we are thankful that Christ saved us. We're thankful for we're going to heaven. Um, but the scripture moves us a tad higher than there because gratitude, 
the longer you go as a Christian, the more you're looking back on the day of salvation. For me, that's 30-something years now. Whenever you get to the higher ones, and they are linked, but the higher ones are faith, hope, and love. What faith does is it says, the same God I'm grateful to for saving me back there is the same God who will bless me today if I do what He wants me to do and serve Him. So it's faith in, for what God's doing in the present as I keep living for Him built on the gratitude. And then the next one up is hope because over and over again the Scripture says not just that I'm looking forward to being in heaven with Him, but also some of the verses we've just looked at that He really will reward what's done for Him, right? And of course the highest motivation is love. Christ loved me, I love others, I'm not as concerned about reward as just loving Him back and loving the world in His name. And so faith, hope, and love are always presented as the highest motivations to serve God. Now, a sense of guilt can, keep, can get you back on track, so can the fear and obligation. But you will make the most out of your Christian walk if you're in faith, hope, love, built on gratitude, remembering uh, it's all back to the foundation of fear. Uh, is in reverence for God. Okay, so I've given you verses here, I think, um, but I'm just going to go through the different things that were told, um, things that please Christ that He will reward. And so I'm just going to give the reference, uh, and you can uh, look it up later if you like, use it as a little Bible study. But we're told Christ will re re uh, reward renewing your mind with God's truth. As in Romans 12, don't be conformed to this world, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Uh, you don't lose when you spend time in God's Word. In fact, I think it's neat uh, how uh, the, the tabernacle has not only the Awana program for youth, but then the Word of Life for high school students. And uh, they actually just finished with the book of 1 Peter in their study going through that, which is really cool. And they've already gone through three or four books, you know. Uh, and it's just this first semester, and over five years they go through the whole Bible. Uh, and so it's neat that that happens. The Sunday school classes uh, do much something similar if you stick with them. Uh, it will, uh, goodness and righteousness, um, Christ will reward. Doing your job for God's glory, Colossians 3, 23 and 24. Whatever you do, do it with all your heart as for the Lord, not for men. And it says the Lord will reward. There's an inheritance there. Supporting ministries generously, Philippians 4. He talks about how uh, you know that, uh, in fact, let's just look at that one because it's so good. They're all good, but let's look at Philippians 4 because this one trips me out uh, when I think about what Paul's saying here. He was so thankful that the Philippians had given a gift that helped his ministry. And in verse 17, he writes to them, Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. What account? He's talking about, is he talking about... Uh, you know, back in Antioch, he's got an Apostle Paul bookstore and you can get an Apostle Paul bobblehead if you uh, give enough. No, he's talking about your heavenly account. Indeed, I have all in abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And so we can't take our possessions with us, but we can send them ahead, right? And so we're investing in God's work and He'll reward that. Um, he says that walking worthy and bearing fruit, Colossians 1.10. In Colossians 3.20, that obeying your parents comes with uh, reward. Speaking the gospel, 1 Thessalonians 2.4. Sexual purity, 1 Thessalonians 4. It explicitly says it's God's will that we abstain from sexual immorality. 
And uh, so that's there, and he'll reward that. Intercessory prayer, 1 Timothy 2. Taking care of your family, 1 Timothy 5, 4. Uh, you know, the responsibilities that we have to our immediate family and our parents as well. Um, he'll reward things done in faith, as Hebrews 11 says. By faith, in fact, let's look at the Hebrews 11 one too, because I want to get that one locked into our minds. Definitely a verse worth memorizing. Hebrews 11, 5 and 6. By faith Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. He rewards you for diligently seeking him, for having faith. Hebrews 13, 16, doing good and sharing will be uh, rewarded. Being equipped to do His will, Hebrews 13, and keeping His commands, 1 John 3. All these things are the overflow of relationship with God, not the source of those things. But Peter has told us already, because of who we are in Christ, you want to be with Christ, you want to do what you do for Christ, you want to do what you do to please Christ, and He will um, definitely reward when you see Him face to face. And you can see the point, can't you? Because when you flip it around and say, okay, let's say that uh, instead of having a vibrant faith, you have viewed faith more as a transaction rather than a transformational experience. And in churches like ours, a whole lot of people say, okay, you know, I, I have checked off that I walked the aisle, I, I got baptized, and I made that transaction, and I'm looking to see for others to do that transaction as well. And yet very little transformation has happened in their life. Well, Jesus makes clear what He wants is us to view eternal life not as a transaction, but a transformation. In John 17, He says, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom you sent, right? It's that growing relationship that transformative experience that makes us value Him so much, that makes our hearts sick for Him, that makes us want to do things like you do in a long-distance dating relationship like Elizabeth and I had, right? And, you know, we knew we loved each other because, man, we were, uh, it was so neat uh, doing the premarital counseling for Dan and Hope, you know, because they dated long distance. And uh, those long phone calls, you know, uh, they got to do it now where there was no fees attached. Man, Elizabeth and I, we were racking up the debt, you know, we were calling each other long distance. But the, the notes, the cards, all kinds of ways that you could tangibly see that we loved each other. And there should be that in our relationship with the Lord, too. And many of you exemplify those in your thoughts, in your words, in your deeds. And uh, it's just another way of evidencing to each other that God's love is in your heart and life, even as we look forward to the one day when Jesus himself will say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Thank you for joining us for today's edition of Tabernacle Today. To learn more about The Tabernacle, please visit our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. There you may access additional Tabernacle Today podcasts as well as other resources. If you don't have a church home or happen to be visiting the area, we'd love to welcome you to one of our weekly services. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to seeing you back for another edition of Tabernacle Today. Tabernacle Today.